welcome everyone. This is uh, Stephen Ridgeway for Talking VTE number 30 on May 30, 2011. It's a rainy and stormy night here in Sydney and we're all gathered around face to face on the deck tonight. No online audience, although we did try to drum up our normal uh, um, attendee, Alex uh, Hayes, but he's not connected to the grid at the moment. So we're here with uh, Michael Coughlin. Evening, everybody. And uh, Robin Jay. Hi, everyone. And Michael's here in Sydney, uh, face-to-face with us, because he's been to the LNET Masterclass with uh, Clark Quinn here uh, in Redfern. So we just thought we'd have a bit of a chat with Michael about that and uh, what it was like and what his thoughts were. Well, Clark Quinn... Cheekily refers to himself as the Quinnovator. The Quinnovator. And the outcome of his workshops are called Quinnovation. So it's a nice kind of little play on words, but he's been able to use his surname to kind of work it into promo materials. But I've been kind of skirting around Clark Quinn for, I don't know, 10 years, I suppose, mm-hmm. since the internet came along. I just He cropped up very early on as a, an innovator in the educational space who was focusing particularly on e-learning. So when I saw that he was going to be in the country delivering a, a master class, I thought I'd give it a try. And look, I'm glad I did. So I could, you know, mention what happened or did you want to... No, well, I mean, you went to the half-day workshop, uh, Deeper Instructional Design, Making E-Learning Really Work. So, uh, it's interesting, I mean, the whole concept of instructional design, I mean, it's you know, some people argue it's a little dated concept. Um, is it still still relevant today, instructional design? I think so, and maybe more than ever, because I think in terms of mainstream education, there's a lot more of e-learning activity, which means there are a lot more people putting courses online and most of the stuff to date is fairly average. Mm. So I still think there's lots of room. I don't know, you might argue about the, the label, instructional design, you might mm. call it learning design. I mean, I don't... I, don't I am too. I, I, I would certainly do that because... For me, instructional design is di- designing instruction. It's not designing learning experiences. So it's a very instructivist, behaviourist model of course preparation, if you like. So I'm surprised he still uses it. Well, there is the word deeper there alongside it, and it doesn't argue against what you're saying, Robin, but was deep in the sense that it required a lot of hard thinking. He he would talk quite a lot in the session today, and then he'd give an example of, for example, a, a learning objective or an outcome, and then we would have to, the next step in the exercise would be, well, here's another one, you rewrite it to kind of improve it. Or here's a scenario, you write the introduction to make this more powerful and to have impact and give it emotional import or what mental model would you use to frame this particular activity. So there were lots of things during the day that actually did feel like deep thinking. A lot of general principles 
I guess not just to do with instructional design, but with the, the whole idea of learning, education, internet. For example, he, someone very early on in the piece wanted to talk about learning styles, so he just said, look, I, I just need to declare that I don't believe in them. No. I don't think there's any data to support them, that they are, I think, they were psychometrically flawed. <laughs> well, I, I, I agree with that. Well, well, I agree with it too, only because I've read a number of times over the years. I keep going back to check what's going on with learning styles, and certainly in the academic sphere, you will just get, sorry, it's bunkum. There's absolutely no data to suggest that they exist or that they're useful. It's just, and yet... Uh, it's a chestnut that people keep dragging out. Oh, you've got to cater to people's learning styles. Yeah, yeah personalised learning. Mm. I mean, it's very, you know, I, I can't imagine, you know, there are some very visual things, for example. I can't imagine anyone learning how to um, decorate a cake using uh, audio. <laughs> For example, you know, I mean, it's just absurd. I mean, we should be offering people choice in terms of how they engage and typically people will want a mix of things and some people, you know, will say, well, I like, learn, I like learning how to do particular things hands-on. Well, hey, I think most people do certain things, learn by doing them. Mm. I think, although, the whole thing about learning style is it's one thing to say learners have differing needs. It's another thing to say that learners are different and then just to develop this whole sort of uh, classification of learners that are sort of rigid and hard and fast, you know, the sort of kinesthetic learners, the audio learners, the visual learners, etc., etc. I think we can assume that if you, in any class you're going to have a, a whole diversity of preferences I mean you're going to have if you if you did a test you, you might have, you know have people who whose preferences bend to one way or another I mean so I mean they're, they're not all going to be one or the other so you can assume that you've got a whole, whole diversity there and you need to address that through um, choice and multimodal learning experience yeah I reckon that thing you just have to d- produce, develop, deliver is the word, content in a number of ways so it satisfies all the learning preferences. And I've always been a little bit unsure as to why, well, I know why I don't like using the the phrase learning styles because of what we just talked about because there's a lot of academic evidence that says they simply don't exist. But learner preferences is okay. I'm not quite sure what the difference is but I will use the phrase learner preferences because that's Not a kind of um, a bandwagon. Mm. Yeah, I think people say, well, I prefer to learn this type of thing in this way. Or, you know, I I like to listen to this for this reason. It's kind of not boxing people into, you know, stereotypical Hmm. labels. I'm a kinesthetic learner. I've always got to be able to move it around. (laughs) Right, or hey, I'm going to lose, um, and all, you know, uh, you know I'm oral. So, so hey, I, I'm going to lo- learn anything, whatever it is, by listening to podcasts. Well, no, I don't think so. Mm. I, I, I like the the approach that, all right, 
even if learning styles do exist, and let's say you've got someone who's an auditory learner, so-called, then, then you should give them a whole lot of other stuff because that's how they're really going to learn because if you're just giving them what they actually know how to do, then you're actually doing them a disservice. So if, if learning styles do exist, then give people <laughs> kind of something different to what they want because <laughs> that's what's going to push them. So that's another interesting kind of take on it. Anyway, but, that, that's all by the by. Yeah, but there was, he, he said something today that I struggled with and I didn't actually challenge him in front of the whole group. That he asked us throughout the afternoon to, to say so if we felt something that strongly, but I certainly said it to the guy sitting next to me when we were doing pair work. He was really hot on... I was trying to work out the, the, the difference between or the connection between mental models and diagrams. Did a mental model automatically infer you've got to have a diagram? And But I'm, I'm not... Sh but another part of that was you should, you should have diagrams. If you've got text, you should have a diagram to support it. No, that's fine. And I find myself most often, if, especially with things like charts, mm. flow diagrams, I'll go for the text, please. Give me the words. Yeah. I, I don't, don't bug me with that, that, that crazy diagram. Just give me the paragraph because that I'll understand it more quickly and I don't want the diagram. Yeah. So, interesting because I, I I'm, say that. I'm yeah. Showing, showing our preferences, okay. So he was talking about you know things like mental maps and um, concept mapping. I can see its value, but it's not how I think. And I actually referred to my notebook here, something I was doing a couple of nights back. And look, it's a couple of pages of dot points, and you know that that's how I sort out what I need to know with arrows going around the place. But anyway, so that was one thing that he kind of debunked very early on, and the other thing that he took sometime to make clear is that uh, he doesn't believe in the generational differences no. between XY boomers and millennials. Mm. He just says, I, I think that's um, it's equivalent to sexism, to stereotype everybody into you know, a particular set of characteristics and doesn't find it at all helpful and refuses to play if he's asked to buy a company to kind of, you know, we want something to develop materials to show the differences in you know, how these generations behave in the workplace. He said, no, I'll help you do that about how people are different. That's so right. I'm not going to do it uh, focusing on age or the generation as the defining feature of the difference. So good mm. on him. Well, I think, and I think that works both ways. It's about saying, well, you know, young people are, are scattered and can't attend and, you know, blah, 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 on it, on it goes, and they're this and they're that. And it's also saying, well, you know, if you're over 40, you you can't engage with technology, you've got no idea, etc. Yeah, et so, yeah stereotypical. Well, that probably aligns with his disdain for learning styles because it's putting people in boxes. You've got these yeah. categories and yeah. people fit into them and you have to cater to those yeah, specifically. People, people do like labelling. Mm. But in terms of you know, developing e-learning content with those two big kind of disclaimers out of the way, he was very hot on, um, as I said before, what's your mental model and also things like what do you want the learners to do? And he said any 
whether it's e-learning or whatever learning, it's about identifying a gap. And the gap is either skills, knowledge or attitude. So identify what it is you want to change, the person to move from here to here, and be very clear on whether it's skills, knowledge or attitude, and then design an experience that moves people from here to here. And if it's not doing that, and if it's just knowledge in particular, then give them a, a PowerPoint and lock them up in a room for half an hour and let them do that. And don't bother you know, producing some whiz-bangy learning because it's, there's nothing gained. It's just a waste of time and resources. It's about something more significant if you're going to design a course. And he talked about the whole notion of why do we go course? Why do you want to put it in a course? We're stuck on course. and Sometimes a course isn't what's required. Um... I mean, that's why, you know, I was struggling before with, you know, the topics that we've been developing. I mean, it's a series of topics, of engagement topics. It's like, well, what are you designing? Oh, I'm just designing a series of engagement topics. I mean, what do you call it? Do you call it a course, or an experience? A, a series of conversations. A series of conversations. They're all, it all seems a bit, nothing seems to fit. Hmm. Engagement obviously was a a key factor in discussions of what makes good e-learning content. And so, was this really about content? I mean, is instructional design at the end of the day uh, structuring content? Is that a way? No, to no, no, no. Although most of the kind of the situated examples were about content and the discussions yeah. raised by a lot of people were about content, but no, he wasn't talking about content. About what you do with say. Yeah. How the students engage with content, how they learn. I just, as, you know, struck by the, the last time I saw you speak, you talked about the content, the content-less course. How does that sit with what he was talking about today? Uh, it would it would sit fine in f with him. I doubt whether it would sit fine with um, most of the people who were there today. I wanted to mention an example from years ago, but I didn't. It's the one where, but like forums came up, for example. Are forums good enough? Is that all the content you need? Or how do you make forums work? And... Did I mention the example about French students and American students learning French and English off each other? This was 10 years ago, this example of a guy just joined up French students and American students and said, American students, you communicate in French. French students, you communicate in English. Paired them up, and then later on in groups, and they said, and the whole semester, said, and they learnt more language in that semester than they ever did when I designed a course for them, simply yeah. by designing them up. So there, there was a contentless course. But... He was more concerned about, uh, well, the example that comes to mind is that you need to administer medication for people who, you know, like medical situations, doctors, nurses. How do you get, and he used the word viscerally, do you say viscerally or viscerally? Viscerally, I think. Viscerally. Viscerial, it's the, uh, it's the means, the Latin for the body. 
yeah, the cook that, yeah, physically engaged. And so you need to get people physically engaged. They've got buy-in. They're moved by a scenario. You're, or you hit them with an introduction that's dramatic, provocative, outrageous, or emotional, but hit them with something that gets them engaged straight away. So that could be, you know, that could be a post or a blog entry. It doesn't have to be content. Provocative statement. Just something that gets people... So you want to be able to do this, or you want to be the kind of person who prevents this happening, then this is how we're going to get make sure you can do this. You, yeah, so I thought, you know, that's kind of stating the obvious, but we don't do it. And when I think of the thing you know, that I've designed last week, I didn't do that kind of punch people between the eyes the moment they come onto that course. And I, I should have, you know. That <laughs> begs the question of how. I think sometimes, you know, courses, particularly, I mean, I'm thinking about staff development courses, too often they are presented in a way that seems to assume that the um, members of staff who are the audience of it have no knowledge. You know, it's kind of treating them, going back to that empty vessel thing, instead of saying, okay, you've been teaching for a long time, you've had all these experiences. You know, let's talk about these this issue that you must have, you know, you must be grappling with at some point. So actually starting with where they're at instead of... It's funny that I, I, I don't know why we do it, or why some people do it. When we're trapped in course mode, we think course. Yeah, I don't know that it's that. I don't. I don't know that courses in inverted commas have to be the be designed in that way. I think course is just kind of a can be just a series of conversations with a boundary around it of some some sort. But it's probably looking at it in a very loose fashion. Well, just one other thing that I'd add from today is that in the, this was quite ironic, really, because back home I've been having conversations with people about the Moodle lesson tool, and the, the Moodle lesson tool is about branching scenarios. So what mm. if you do this, it take, and you say, yes, I'm going to do this, it takes you down a particular path, like those books that used to have multiple endings, depending on what path you chose through the book. Quandary is software that does the same. Michael Guider today mentioned Udutu, which is an open source one, which he says is very good. But I'd, mm. I'd been finding this lesson tool in Moodle incredibly complicated to create a usable branching scenario. And I've spent a couple of hours of my life recently trying to do it. Can't. I just find it too complicated, even though I know what the tool is meant to do. And... <laughs> and then I said, look, if it's that hard, the average lecturer is just not going to do it. So it might be a great idea, but I just don't think it's worth pursuing because it, people aren't going to do it. It's too hard. Anyway, I got kind of beaten around the ears for that. And today, at least half an hour of this four-hour workshop was about branching scenarios and how good they are as an alternative to quizzes or assessment in general. Mm. But it does make assumptions, doesn't it? If, if you've got to plan that in advance, 
then it assumes that you know what the scenarios are or should be. Is that how how it works? Well, yes. And, and yes. yet, and and yet, I would find as a student, I would find that incredibly frustrating. It's like the you know the the survey questions that give you you go you answer this one or this one and there's no alternative. It's like well I don't want either of them and I'll write in the ba- in the in the ba- margin of the survey document because I refuse to. It's that one. Yeah, if then then that kind of stuff. Yeah, but the user doesn't know that. I mean, I'm I'm thinking about those those video uh, examples where. You would watch a particular scenario and then you would be asked, uh, okay, what would you do? What do you think you should do in response to the situation? And if you choose this, then you're taken off to a whole other video narrative. Mm. Whereas if you chose another option, you've got a different video mm. narrative. So um, it's you know quite situated. Don't, yeah, I can see that. But don't you think in the planning of that, the design of that, Hmm. Incredible assumptions are being made. Of course, because you're creating a whole universe. Yeah, yeah, and you are actually blocking alternatives for people. You are saying, if you answer this, then that is because your mind is in this space. Yeah, but you can come back and do the whole thing again. And, well, and not always in movies. Make different choices. <laughs> the, you see, a lot of those, those really clever ones with the movies is that the movie depends on your interaction. So if you make certain choices, the whole narrative changes. But that is, that, but so that is a game. A movie every time. It is a game, yes, it is a game, absolutely. But I can, I can tell you that when is, that is used in Moodle, quite often, it, A, it's, it's not treated as a game, and B, you wouldn't have the choice to come back and to head down a different path. Just on that, of course, the, the other session that um, Clark, Quinn did was we'll games is games seriously seriously mm-hmm. so which is exactly obviously where that takes off from yeah. are you going to that as well no I'm not oh, okay um, wouldn't it be good to work this is, well you could do this online work with a group of people and say you know this is this is what we're learning and this is the situation, and what if you administered this amount of drug X to this person in this condition? What would happen? Right, and then you'd write that up. So is that a good plan of action? No, clearly it wasn't. Right, what about if we do this? So you, you could build the branching scenario with the participants. With a lot of alternatives. Yeah, well, to, just as an aside there, today I went up to um, uh, one of the buildings that we, we have, Building W, and they've got, in Maritime there, they've got, a, they've got a boat simulator, a maritime simulator, and it's actually, you're sitting on, it's got about 10 LCDs, or no, about 5 or 6 LCDs going around, right around to the corner, and you're sitting on the helm of a boat, and you sit on this piece of metal, which has actually got the vibration of a diesel engine, and you've got the throttle for the boat, and you have to actually navigate going through the heads of Sydney. And there's, and yeah, it's and there, and the guy in the other room could throw in different variables. Okay, there's a storm, or there's a, a heavy sea, or a wave, or a whale, or, and so there you're actually seeing the sort of thing you're talking about. So, you know. 
you know, scripted scenarios in which you're... If-then scenarios. If-then scenarios, and you're forced to make a choice. And a lot of that sort of simulated learning is... And it's very immersive learning, Ooh. very powerful because it's very real. You're having to make real-time decisions that have real-time consequences in the narrative. And uh, the outcomes aren't fixed. Uh, they're determined on the choices, mm. the micro-choices you make along the way. They're potentially quite powerful. And I in, think so. And things like, you know, Flying an aircraft, or in this case, you know, driving a boat, uh, or you know, as you say, making decisions about medical well, uh, decisions, drug administration, and that. And it's a good way to tackle contingencies, which you, you know you're never going to do in a in a real workplace. Well, a lot of see all uh, real world scenarios are never hard and fast. They're about making decisions, and often the variables are complex, um, interactive, dynamic. Um, and, and often you have to make a choice um, and you have to understand the, the consequences. Sometimes you don't understand the consequences because you're not experienced enough. So you, at least in the simulator, you can find out the person died. But, but get, getting back to where we started with, as a single uh, teacher designing a course in Moodle, I mean, it would be, I would think, as you said, Michael, an incredibly difficult task to both plan out that and kind of make it make it work effectively on on your own in mm. terms of covering, you know, all those scenarios and branches and options and stuff. I mean, it's probably a skill to design. That incredibly thing, difficult to understand then. the whole. Big picture. Sounds like something that needs to be designed by you know, a group of kind of experts in the field, design, designers, and plugged in. Well, it could be. And if you've got a you know, graphic design website person on hand, you could just write down on paper this is the scenario, these are the branches, could build it, please. Mm. I guess that was more my point that a lecturer would have an idea for a branching scenario that is a more effective assessment tool than a quiz, but it's just so hard to create the thing in the Moodle lesson tool that mm. only one in a million is going to bother doing it. Well, it's probably a function of the Moodle lesson tool more than... Yeah. than I mean, virtual worlds offered up that potentiality of having experiential immersive learning environments in which you, know, you are making decisions in a real-time dynamic environment. Um, sometimes in that case, then other participants in the mix are real, you know, they're real in the sense that they're actually human beings there, they're not. But they could also be scripts. You know, in a, in a virtual world, you can have scripts. Some of the characters are actually, you know, they're, they're, Behaving in a they're bots. Yeah. They're bots, you know. He did make an interesting comparison today between quizzes and games and it could be virtual worlds he said games online games are just quizzes millions of them one after mm. the other mm. where you're you're confronted with five options and you've got to make a decision fast so he says, that's all they are they're just quiz after quiz after quiz but the options are they're realistic and one option they're not so you know the average quiz he said it's quite often easy enough to guess the right answer but in a game that's not the case, but it's more that point. I just thought that was an interesting idea, and so is life. Mm. You know, mm. you, you walk through life and you make a million decisions all day long, and at any minute, any moment of that day, you've got four or five choices you could make. Mm. 
Yeah. Is there such a thing as a wrong choice? Well, that's time for the philosophy podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Games are just a series of multiple choice questions. Yeah, so for me, it was a, a worthwhile exercise to go along today. One more little acronym. Have you heard of WIIFM? WIFM? WIFM, yeah. It because that's what the, the average learner is going to do. Whenever they log on to any course, the first thing that runs through their head is, WIFM, what's in it for me? Oh, right. And if you don't grab them with that immediately, forget it. They're just going through the motions, and they might do it because they're being assessed, but they're not, not engaged. Again, stating the obvious, but it's a good thing to remember. What about, did he talk about social learning? Um, you know, engagement. I mean, beyond content about that, about ways. Did he talk about that at all? Was that something that's part it, of? It was flagged very early, and he said he would like to talk about it, but he didn't actually get there. Hmm. He said it was important, and we have some time at the end of the day, but we didn't. Are you going to the Nigel Payne um, session that's coming up? Because that's all about social learning. No, but I read somewhere recently on Twitter, maybe, someone said if you haven't listened to Nigel Payne or read something, they said do, because it's mm. magnificent, which doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, well, he's, he's coming up in July, so um, interesting, you might want to think about coming across. If you, you could um, find out. Yeah, soy body, or you know, <laughs> find a lot of bottle tops or yeah, something. Not cheap. I can't afford to go to watch or something yeah. for a day. <laughs> no, sorry, Nigel. Sorry, Nigel. <laughs> and I mean, I've got a soft spot for him mm. because, but I, yeah, no. in 1997. He was the keynote speaker at Networking 1997, the very first networking yeah, conference yeah. in Adelaide. Adelaide yeah. And I don't know whether I've seen anyone better since, actually. He was the yeah, first no, I person... Think, I think you should sponsor Michael there. <laughs> That's a little, nice little plug for you. doesn't come better than Michael Coglin plugging you. He was the first person I ever saw give a keynote speech with amazing slides, complete with video, animation, his own mm. photographs, normal PowerPoint seen. slides, mm. right, the mixture mm. of everything. He didn't break eye contact with the audience once. And throughout his presentation, what was coming out of his mouth was gauging, inspirational, intelligent, and referring in perfect time to what was behind him. Mm. And he didn't look once at what was up there, and I thought, that's brilliant. Mm. That's brilliant. And I don't know whether I've ever seen anyone do it as well. And he's also a lovely, lovely guy, I think. Yeah. yeah. So he came to Adelaide a few times to help, out, help us <laughs> kind of find our way out of the dark ages, but um, we didn't listen to him. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we're at uh, 34 minutes and we, we did say that we'd keep this podcast to uh, 30 minutes. Any any final um, concluding remarks? No, look, just 
you know, in case Clark ever hears, thanks, Clank, thanks Clark, for an enjoyable afternoon, and thank you, Elnet, the e-learning network of Australasia, and thank you, Robin and Stephen, for a lovely evening here on your deck. Mm. And the rain has stopped. The rain has stopped, and the clouds have parted, it seems. Mm.